creating cyberspace and welcome to episode 54 of the double density podcast with your host brian and angelo now first things first angelo how are you this week i'm doing very well i think spring is finally here i think we say that every week but it's almost finally here temperatures are getting warmer quebec is thawing out and i'm happy so I have a bone to pick with you right off the top of the show, and it has to do with the show itself. So are you settled in? Can we have a mature discussion like two sure. adults should? Okay. Uh, so you love to talk about all things Apple. I guess sometimes. A, a yeah. lot more than the average uh, pleb or peasant would. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, as evidenced by this week's uh, show notes, the amount of Apple uh, news items you kind of stacked in there is kind of, we had to cut a bunch of Apple stuff. Um, I want to institute a rule here and okay. I want you to sort of like keep it on. Okay. So I kind of want to do like a one-to-one, like for every Apple item, we discuss a non Apple item. You know, I'm totally for that. I actually want to discuss less Apple because there's this weird vibe out there that thinks I'm like just totally an Apple zealot or something. I don't want that. I think, uh, this is like a tech show, not solely focused on Apple. So I'm totally fine with that. I think just this week, a lot of stuff came up and that's why this is all in here. So yeah, I think we're fine. I'm fine with that. I think oh, that's I was, a good rule. Did, I was you, did you expect raring, me to fight? Yes, I was, I was I was gearing up for a whole fight, but I guess that's not going to happen, unfortunately. I'm a very agreeable co-host. I know, I know. It's it's kind of, it's sad almost. Uh, also, folks, if you head over to twitter.com slash double underscore density, you can check out uh, Angelo's Apple uh, tattoo. He's had it for about six or seven years now. Uh, it's on his, uh, what is it? Like the, like where the shoulder, like your right shoulder, I guess. What are like you in the talking back? about? You're just your Apple making tattoo. up now. No, I don't have an Apple tattoo. As of yet. I probably, if I would ever get a tattoo, it would be not of a company of any kind. Maybe we should ask listeners to vote on what you should get as a tattoo. Like, <laughs> uh, go ahead and tweet at us. Anything. Let us know what you think um, uh, Angela's first and next tattoo uh, should be. Um, but that's kind of like an IRL thing. I think we're going to stick into the realm of like IRL stuff this week because you uh, did a nerd thing this week. I did a nerd thing with a friend of the show, Tyler Menard, who had uh, messaged me earlier last week, I guess, uh, asking if I wanted to order some merch from uh, one of our favorite podcasts, uh, the Accidental Tech Podcast. And I wasn't going to order any merch this year. And then I saw they had a, a nice baseball cap, which they actually call the dad hat. And it's perfectly appropriate for myself. And uh, I think Tyler ordered one too, and we ordered two caps and saved a bit on merch because uh, the shipping to Canada is not fun. So uh, yeah, we saved some money there and not a whole lot. I think we saved like four bucks each, but still. Uh, And I think that's one of the bigger problems we have. Like we want to support a lot of our podcasting friends by buying their merch, but living in Canada, both the dollar as well as the uh, amounts that cost to get shipping here, like for items is astronomically high. Comparatively speaking, I would be paying 40 to $42 uh, per shirt. Yeah, the the baseball cap I ordered, I think, cost, uh, when all was said and done, uh, 45 bucks Canadian or something, just for a baseball cap. Are you ready to, like, weird around to have discussions with people who notice your cap? I, you know what? I would welcome it. Uh, I've worn uh, a couple of Accidental Tech Podcast t-shirts, and no one has ever approached me at all uh, to ask me about it. So there we go. Uh, although somebody last year asked me if it was my podcast, and I said, no, this is not my podcast. Though one day it might be. Uh, if anyone is interested in double density merch, you can let us know. We've kind of toying with some ideas, but we'd love to hear your input. Uh, usually you can tweet at us and we may listen to you, double underscore density. If not, double density podcast at gmail.com are the most uh, effective ways of reaching us. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Twitter, uh, as we record this, everyone uh, today was involved in a very active discussion about how Canada has bags of milk. Do you still partake in the buying of bags of milk? Yeah, we buy those because they're the most economical form of buying milk for a family of four that where there's people that drink milk. Great. So you have the little bag holder? Yeah, a little, a little uh, what would, you, would we call that a carafe? You could, cons- sure. Or a milk baggy holder. holder. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know if we'll post pictures of that. Maybe I'll go take a picture of my fridge. Uh, anyway, all this to say that uh, Twitter is good. I... Uh, I contacted Tyler. He ordered a cap for me. And we're actually going to meet in person for the first time, which is kind of fun. Uh, have you decided your wardrobe for the day? Business casual because it'll be, I'll be meeting on the way to work. So there we go. Okay. So you're not planning on dressing up or wearing a flower in your hat or anything like that? Uh, no. 
Okay. Uh, I think we right. kind of both know what we, we look like. We'll probably just meet in front of the staples in the central station. I'll be there watching you two from a distance creepily. Uh, exciting, Brian. Very exciting. <laughs> Moving on to uh, not so personal things. Uh, let's just start things off by talking about some Apple stuff now that that's sort of like out in the open. Uh, so Apple seems to have a real problem with some of its newer laptops. We've talked about this before when we were uh, mentioning that it's kind of hard to figure out which laptop to recommend to people when they want to buy a new computer. And the issues with these new laptops are the keyboards. At first, it was people felt the keyboards were kind of weird feeling, like you would type on them and they have a very shallow depth when you type. And the thing is, is now it seems like a lot of people are having problems with these keyboards. And um, it seems like Casey Johnston has become the spokeswoman for uh, people and their Apple keyboards because she wrote a really great article about her experience in taking her MacBook to a uh, Apple store for repair and the weird things that happened there and how expensive it would have been if it wasn't under warranty. And she's written another story about how she's actually sold her MacBook Pro back to Apple. And when she took a new job, she actually took the MacBook Air, which is their oldest laptop, basically because of the keys. And she's recommending nobody buy these things. The problem is, and she actually says the same thing, is she has no idea what to recommend to people because Apple does make really good computers. And if you're into their OS, which is the reason I use their computers, it's kind of hard to go and move to windows, which isn't terrible, but still, if you're used to using something for years and years, it's kind of hard to switch. Right. And why do you think that Apple has been so non-responsive about this officially, apart from like that weird page about what to do if your um, laptop uh, keyboard stops working? That page is really funny. Have you have you been to it? Yes. It's it's a weird thing where they show you a specific angle to hold your laptop in and spray compressed air into it to make sure that you get all the dust. Because it seems like a tiny little speck of dust can ruin your day with these computers. Yeah, I agree with that. And unfortunately, like it's it's so minute um that it kind of just wrecks uh the entire experience as well as this large investment you've made in yourself. Oh, these these computers are not cheap. If you're buying a 13-inch MacBook Pro or a 15-inch MacBook Pro with uh, the one with the touch bar, you're paying multiple thousands of dollars in some cases. The problem is, is none of the computers, except for the MacBook Air, which has such an old processor in it that it's not really recommended to buy it, and it doesn't have a nice screen either. If you want an Apple laptop with the Retina screen, which is incredibly nice, you're going to have to get one of these computers with these shallow butterfly switch key keyboards. And uh, Apple Insider did like a very, I wouldn't call it uh, rigorous or scientific study. No, they kind no. of, uh, you know, have some sources in a couple of Apple stores and did some uh, digging around. And it seems like these keyboards fail twice as much as the old keyboards. Right. And um, I'd encourage you to go read the Apple um, Insider story. Uh, John Gruber had a good take on it as well, where uh, he does point out that it's more correct to say that the MacBooks that need service are twice as likely to need keyboard service. It's not like the keyboards are failing twice as much. Right. It's indicative of a, indicative of a trend, not necessarily a trend unto itself either. Yeah, and, and that's the, the problem here is that we don't really know what the numbers are. Apple always knows, and if they're within tolerances, they're not going to do anything about it. The problem is, is that there's a lot of vocal Apple users that are usually like, uh, dare I say, champions of the brand that are hmm. really complaining about this. That sounds familiar. Uh, but yeah, I think that Apple's kind of done this thing where they've cornered a specific type of market and has and have entered all of these like different niches um, to the point where they've raised basically a, a generation of people on Macs. And now um, as their choices begin to wither and they're not actually responding to the needs of the community, but rather they're giving them what they think the community needs. And then an issue like this comes up and they're very silent about it because of the fact that like they know that they have these people, whether or not they're happy to admit it. For sure. And the problem they're facing now is it seems like because they've become so big based on one product, the iPhone, it's almost like they can't get as many people to work on these Macs to make them work better. I don't know what the problem is. They're usually such, so good at designing these things that you would think that a keyboard getting a speck of dust in it would not get past them, but it looks like it is. 
And it's it's starting to make me wonder, like, why are they making these missteps? Is it because they become so huge? I started using Apple products in 2003. So it's been quite a while, I guess 15 years at this point. And, you know, there's a little... Uh, a little bit of me wondering, is it because Steve Jobs is gone or is it because of how they're being managed or is it because they just, back then they were able to concentrate on a small subset of things. I bought my first Mac at the point where they only had really a, the quadrant whole uh, thing. You know, they, I don't know if you right. remember yep. how they had the quadrants, right? They had a consumer desktop, a consumer laptop, a professional desktop, a professional laptop. That was it. You were you were a consumer. You'd buy the iMac. You were a pro. You'd buy the Mac Pro, and and that's what happened. Like I bought an iBook because I was just a student and I wanted to have a nice laptop and I wanted to do some music on it, but nothing professional quality. Uh, so did you bring it to class? Were you the bell of the ball? Like, did women approach you and talk to you when you had your laptop out? No, I didn't. It was just a like a regular old iBook, right? It was the 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 white. It wasn't the the old clamshell ones. I don't know if you know which ones I'm talking about. The, yes, I do. The yeah. colorful ones that had like a handle and everything. They were yeah, my neat, fiance but... actually was talking about those last week because we had watched a compilation of like older um, commercials from ninety nine two thousand ish. Let's say, and like that was part of their uh, appeal is the colorful uh, clamshell design. Did you watch the uh, amazing? Is it, I think her name was Ellen Feiss. No. The one where she looked totally stoned? No. And she was talking about her computer eating her paper? No, I, that was not one that I watched. Okay, well, maybe I'll put that one in the show notes because that's a great uh, one. of the, When Apple used to have the whole uh, switcher campaign, remember that? Right. Yes. Uh, anyway, so I had an iBook. Maybe if I had one of those like fancy, slim power books, I would have brought it to school more, but... I just used to take notes. Would you have approached a woman with uh, a Mac laptop? No, I no. Wouldn't. Okay, it's not. And that was that's not my style. Uh, so uh, and yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do want to find out Angelo's style, you can always tweet at him at Angelo Furin. Go ahead and ask him his style. I would love to hear a treatise on Angelo's uh, early two thousands uh, love lifestyle. Uh, and, uh, so yep. go, going back, though, to like the bigger issue at hand about the idea of like what went wrong, right? So and what are the alternatives? Here's a couple of alternatives. We hire skywriters. We go back to drawing in caves. Maybe we bring back the Apple II. You go a little too far, I think, Brian. I, that's that's a step too far. I think the, the worry here is that there's not enough time for Apple to redesign these things at this point, that we're going to be stuck with this model of laptop for a while, not necessarily the laptop, but the keyboard, they're going to need to go back to the drawing board and fix this keyboard. And well, if they have a commitment to like, like their consumer, the way that they pretend they do, then I think it, it, I'm hoping that they're currently investigating this and trying to come up with like some kind of, of fix to it or, you know, a, a keyboard reorganization or maybe something along those lines to help the customer service experience as well as the, you know, just the general um, customer experience in terms of usage. Well, one would hope because the problem also is that this is not an easy repair. You have to, because of the way the computer is built, they have to change the entire bottom part. They have to lift off the whole uh, the keyboard, change that, and it's hundreds of dollars if it's out of warranty, which is another thing. So after a year, or if you have Apple Care after three years, and it's broken, uh, you're going to be paying a lot of money for this computer to fix it, and it's kind of frustrating. Hopefully, they're going to have one of those repair programs, but. At this point, I think that's the best they can do. And the other problem is, is today there was their quarterly earnings. And um, yeah, they're still making a lot of money. It's always year over year, they're making more and more money. So I don't think they really care. I don't know if they don't care. I guess they care, but... I think they have enough revenue streams that they don't care because that's the thing is that they they've captured a segment of the market that's really really brand loyal, right? So after that, even if there are several missteps and you know you may temporarily turn someone off from using an Apple product, I think they will return because, like I was saying before, they've raised a generation of people where people see their Mac as a need, not a want. Well, and the thing is, is Macs are kind of almost not that they're on the way out. Like you and I use them more, but I've, we've said this before. A lot of people can get by with just a an iPad and a lot of uh, younger people just get by with their phones. Like they don't even care. I can't wait to, to see a student write a uh, 2000 word essay on their phone. Yeah, that, that would be kind of remarkable on an iPad. Uh, though, I mean, it's you, totally you, possible. You could do it with your phone if you use like a, a Bluetooth um, keyboard, I guess. So you I, know what? I That's stand totally corrected. True. I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, I'd still love to see that go down though. It's just uh, the, the alternatives are not there uh, for somebody who, 
really enjoys using Macs. Uh, I use Windows every day, but I can't ever imagine recording this and editing this, writing, doing anything to do with this podcast or music or anything creative. I have trouble on Windows. There's the, the apps I use are not there. Well, there's like, Audacity at least. Like I know a lot of our friends use the, that app to to edit, and I, it's a great program. Like I use it in order to touch up audio as like a first step a lot of the time. That's true, but logic it ain't right, and it's not well for Android. sure. But I also mean like it depends what you want it to do. Which uh, I want to segue into another Angelo story here uh, because I want to make the podcast all about you and I and our experiences. Uh, never mind these links and uh, tech items. I want to shift over and just explore the minutia of our lives. Okay. <laughs> well, you were talking to me today about how you uh, you have the day off on Thursday. You're planning on undertaking or finishing up a very special uh, project that has uh, consequences uh, for members of your family. Um, so speaking of logic, I kind of want to get into that. Okay, I guess. I, I always worry that if when we start talking about like Logic Pro and talking about editing podcasts, do we become too like self-referential and indulgent? But I think some people are interested in this. Well, it's not even about editing a podcast. It's about pleasing your kids in this True. case. So let's get in into this, this case. Yes. Um, I'm, I have the day off on Thursday to run a few errands and, uh, my daughter's decided to be in the talent show this year at school. And she's been talking about this for a while. And I think late last year I had, or even mid of last year, I had started to kind of chart out uh, a Taylor Swift song for her in GarageBand so that she would be able to sing that song in her specific key. So, I mean, when we talked about this today, you're like, most parents would just type in Taylor Swift karaoke. And in On this YouTube, case, yeah. Yeah. But in this case, I we were playing the song. I was playing with her on guitar and I was playing it in the 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 key. It's in D. And I I saw she was having a little bit of trouble. So I, I brought it down uh, to C sharp and she sang it much better. So I actually recorded the whole song in C sharp instead of D. I've started to track that out and now I put it in logic and I'm going to spend Thursday actually finalizing the guitar tracks and maybe a few other extra instruments so that she has a nice track to sing over at the talent show. So it's safe to assume that you have now gained the title of the family's Hans Zimmer. You know, I, I really like seeing Hans Zimmer talk. I, I think you, you're the one who turned me on to Hans Zimmer and made me watch his show in Prague. And that was really good. Yeah, I had the chance to see him in Montreal last year, and it was a, a mind-blowing experience. I don't think I'll ever get to witness that again, because uh, he himself is saying he enjoys touring, but it's not really something that he wants to do long-term. So it was kind of cool last year to see that, as well as John Carpenter, another composer that I talk about somewhat frequently here on the podcast. Uh, surprisingly enough, I guess, as I'm saying this out loud, I've realized the number of times uh, in prior episodes that I've brought him up. But those two, in particular, are fun to watch live for very uh, different reasons. Also, uh, do you know the prog rock band Yes? Yes. Yes. Uh, is there a question? Oh yes. Well, the the prog rock band. Yes, you're aware of them. Yes. <laughs> I know. I'm just messing with you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love you, Roundabout. Okay. So, are you aware of their keyboardist Rick Wakeman? I've heard the name. Okay. So, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you some double density homework, Angelo, as well as our listening audience. I want you to go watch some uh, uh, mid '70s Yes performances because Rick Wakeman uh, wears this very very gigantic cape and plays both a bank of keyboards and synth as well as a guitar once in a while, and it is the most captivating thing because this man is clearly uh, on another level. And I'm not trying to suggest perhaps it is drug induced, but maybe perhaps it is, or perhaps it comes from his vitality. Either way, um, I you are now the family's Rick Wakeman in my mind. You're wearing a Cape, congrats. Speaking of the home, uh, another Apple item, because of course you want to keep going with this. The airport and airport extreme are now persona non grata at Apple. They're discontinuing their routers. This was a story reported, I think, in like November of 2016 by uh, the eminent Mark Gurman, who gets every scoop on Apple, and he's the cause of people getting fired there, sort of indirectly. They kind of leak stories to him. And then they get fired. But he talked about how the Apple team in charge of Airport and Airport Extreme and their whole router thing got disbanded and moved to other parts of the company. They've actually made it official by saying there will no longer be an updated model of the uh, Airport Extreme, which is, I have a 2011 Airport Extreme, which seems to be running fine right now. But I've always worried a bit about it breaking. And I had this in the back of the, my mind that there's no actual new airport extreme to replace it with i could go out and buy the current model but that current model came out in 2013 so it's five-year-old technology 
right? Because I'd asked you, why not just buy a spare one like a smart man would? And you uh, kind of schooled me and said that they're very old, relatively speaking. And, you know, especially in the tech world, they are uh, a little antiquated, I guess. Five years? Yeah, that's ancient. At this point, uh, it's mesh networks where routing is at. And the mesh network to get is the Eero. The thing is, it's that it's twice as expensive as the already expensive uh, Apple routers. But anyway, I like to equate uh, routers to the hot water tank of the tech world, where it's something you absolutely need, but they're super duper boring. They are indeed, but they, they're an essential service. Yeah, and, and if anybody's wondering if I have any recommendations for routers uh, at this point, I've always used the Airport Extreme because it, it did a good job in a house my size. At this point, I think I'm going to get an Eero. I'm just debating whether I get the base station with the two beacons or just the one beacon. Because I have a house, it's three floors, but it's not an especially gigantic house. So I don't know yet what I'll do. Because this is an Apple-centric podcast, let's keep things moving this week from one Apple item uh, to the next. Though this one has a little bit of nostalgia, which is right in our wheelhouse. Angela, you want us to talk about, uh, you know, icons, iconography, the way in which uh, the modern visual language of computers has developed uh, thanks to a woman named Susan Kerr. Yeah, there was a really interesting article in uh, The New Yorker titled The Woman Who Gave the Macintosh a Smile by Alexandra Lang. And it just talks about Susan Kerr, who I'd heard of uh, several years ago. I mean, I knew who she was. And now uh, they're honoring her with an award. She's going to be getting uh, the prestigious AIGA medal, which uh, stands for the uh, American Institute of Graphic Arts. And it's their medal that they give out, I think, once a year. And I think uh, she definitely deserves it. If you go look at the article, you see all the classic nostalgic Mac icons from uh, back when it was called the Macintosh. Nobody really calls Macs Macintoshes unless they're completely dis- uh, disconnected from the whole thing. Are we but, bringing that uh, back? What the the word Macintosh to describe our Macintosh computers? Is this the first, like the start of a wave here? No, I don't think so. I think uh, the Apple nomenclature specifically calls them Macs. But Apple is weird sometimes how they often don't call it the iPhone; they say it's iPhone. I find that really odd. Yeah. Anyways, you can head to the show notes and take a look at some of the classic icons that uh, we've all grown up and loved. And, uh, you know, I think I can't remember what episode it was, but we were talking about the idea of the diskette equaling save and how like this generation uh, coming up now has no idea what a diskette is. And really, uh, Susan Kerr is responsible for this. Right. And it's kind of incredible the amount of icons that she's kind of like created and put forth into the world because she doesn't have, she didn't even have like a computer science background. She didn't have a uh, necessarily like a, what is now required in a lot of these um, pursuits in terms of like a traditional uh, graphics art education. No, she literally drew these on graph paper and uh, she went to high school with Andy Hertzfeld, who was working on the Mac at the time. He brought her in to create these, he created a program to actually create these icons on a Mac. And then she created these icons, showed them to Steve Jobs, and the rest is history. It's it's pretty amazing. If you go look at these, they're adorable. They're wonderful. The ones of the dogs, the diskette is great. Um, I mean, it's sort of inspiration for our show art, sort of. And you can use your Macintosh computer to do that. So two final things in the text section. The first is that we may all live in an age eventually where a universal basic income exists and everyone is comfortable. And the big question will be, what will we do with our time? According to your friend and mine, Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, he's, I take everything he says with a grain of salt, though. He's a little too... I don't know what the word would be. Is he too hopeful, too pessimistic? He's not pessimistic, except when he says machines will kill us. Does he say machines will kill us? Yeah, he does. He say that machines will overtake us eventually. I, I believe in the article he mentions that um, AI will be as intelligent as humans in 2030. I think that's a little um, optimistic or pessimistic, depending on how you look at it. I don't know. So the thing is that like, and I think we've talked about this before where I, I have a more pessimistic view of uh, society as a whole. So the idea of these kinds of eventual movements and, um, uh, tech related advances, uh, as a society globally, um, don't account for human stupidity. No, they don't. Um, and the things with humans is we're all different. And some of us are playing at different levels. For example, uh, Ray Kurzweil, he's probably, I would say, you know, in the in the top tier of intelligent humans. And I guess we should take what he says 
um, at face value, but I don't know. Uh, I do like the idea of uh, universal basic income, uh, although I guess that makes me sound like a, a, a commie, right? Uh, it does, very much so, yeah. What could space be? What could it be made of? What the heck is all those lights out there? Is it just a black curtain with holes in it? I don't know. I'm trying to find out. I want to talk about psychoelectric weapons. So this is a story out of Popular Mechanics by David Grossman. Uh, it it basically details how journalist Curtis Waltman made a uh, Freedom of Information Act request, right? So the idea is that if you uh, file one with the government, there's this um, body that reviews them and then gives you back relevant information. But you have to sort of like curtail and make sure that your request is specific enough that it returns specific results. If they're too vague or broad, they won't give you anything back. So Waltman uh, goes into there. He emails and uh, requesting information about Antifa and white supremacist groups. So he gets a bunch of stuff back. But within the results he gets back, he gets back a zip file called em effects on human body dot zip so if you head over to the popular mechanics story uh there's a great number of um images and things like that that he's pulled that have to do with uh all this like how the brain works how to affect the brain you know how uh telephone towers affect like brain waves yeah the, the one with the telephone towers is kind of cool because you see the little lightning bolts shooting at the people and underneath it says remote mind control which could be a lot of fun and so some of these images are actually pulled from uh, Nexus magazine. So it's an Australian magazine that's focused on things like conspiracy theories, alternative medicine, and the like. And in there, it describes a 1992 lawsuit brought by uh, John Sinclair Acquie against the NSA about uh, how the NSA has the ability to assassinate U.S. citizens covertly or run covert psychological control operations to cause subjects to be diagnosed with ill mental health. So the idea of like manipulation of brainwaves in order to drive someone literally insane. Could make for a good weapon, I would say. But like, what a weird thing. Like you're just, you're clicking around like, okay, like these are all just requests and budgets and things like that. And suddenly you have to like, sort of like contend with like psychoelectronic weapon effects on the body as of, uh, you know, like the last 30 or 40 years. Well, just reading like the first image you'll see is it just talks about things that could happen and it's pointing to like pretty much every single part of the body. It's, it's quite interesting what the effects can be. Uh, like some general effects, like sudden overheating, all body pain, forced caffeine field, whatever that means, sleep prevention, um, <laughs> forced drop in your tracks, sleep inducement. That's pretty cool. Hard to reach itch in the leg area. Is that, are you making that up? No, no, it's right there on one oh. of the things with the leg. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So there we go. Forced precision manipulation of hands, sometimes synced to the forced waking vision. So the idea that they create visions in your mind that you are uh, forced to interact with using okay. uh, brainwave weapons. Well, one that just made me laugh is um, transparent eyelids, whatever that <laughs> yeah, means. Yeah. Forced speech. Another great thing that apparently the government can control. I so you know MK Ultra, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, the ideas out there that the government has definitely, definitely uh, spent a lot of time and money uh, in this sort of thing. So it's not surprising that this kind of documentation exists. It's just funny how it kind of appeared on the scene. Yeah, this was a total uh, accident by whoever sent out the freedom of information request, and uh, it was a pretty great one. Yeah, so it's 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 interesting. I'd say that everyone should click over and at least look at a couple of the images, uh, get an idea of what you're involved with and what the government is probably trying to actively do to you. Angelo, I'm going to head over to the paranormal section and I'll see you there if they don't get to my brainwaves first. Good evening, everybody, or morning or afternoon or whatever. My name is Adam. And I'm Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like stories of ghosts, hauntings, the paranormal, preternatural, and the downright weird, and you enjoy a few laughs as well, then you should probably check us out. Find us anywhere you get your podcast. Come join our Facebook group at Graveyard Tales Podcast or on Twitter at G-R-V-E-Y. Just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. We look forward to seeing you in the graveyard. See you soon. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. And this week, Angelo, we're going to be talking about something special. It is the first entry into a series all about UFO cults and religions. 
So this week we're going to talk about something that is geographically located near us most of the time. So this place uh, known as Quebec, right? So let's get into <laughs> this place. This known place. As yeah, I'm trying to be mysterious here and you know flowery in my language. Uh, yet you mock me. And this has been a long time coming. Uh, we've been planning to talk about alien UFO cults for what? Uh, say months at this point. Yeah. yeah I think weeks. I think the research started in January. Yeah. Yeah, no, that it definitely that yeah, that's that's I'd say about January, yeah. And we want to say this will be an ongoing series that we'll bring back from time to time. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have ideas for uh, many of them, but this week we're going to get into the UFO cult religion of um, the Raelian movement, our homegrown uh, movement, I guess, sort of. Well, not homegrown, but home like continued to grow, and I'll explain why in a sec. Right. All right. So let's get into uh, the founder, right? So the founder is Claude Vorillon. He was born on September 30th, 1946 in Vichy, French, to a Jewish father and an atheistic mother. And from an early age, he dreamed of being a race car driver, but instead headed to Paris at age 15 to try and become a professional singer. So uh, Claude, armed with his guitar, heads over to Paris and was a minor, a teen heartthrob in the 1960s who released a few singles uh, imitating his uh, hero Jacques Brel's singing style. So I've included a couple of uh, names of the singles that he's released and we're going to quickly just sort of um, uh, translate some of them. So there's a Sacré Salle Yeul, which is like a damned dirty mouth, I guess would be the best way of putting it. Yeah, it sounds about right. Dans un verre de vin, so in a wine glass. Yeah. I, I, do I have to agree with all your translations, Brian? I think your, your French is fine. Madame Pipi, which uh, <laughs> translates to <laughs> Mrs. Toilet Attendant, uh, Monsieur Votre Femme Matron, Mister Your Wife is Cheating on Me, and finally, 1967, Quand on se mariera, when we'll get married. So his career petered out due to the suicide of his financial benefactor in 1970, but his lifelong fascination with cars and car racing never did. So he created a magazine called Autopop in the early uh, 70s, whose first issue actually came out in mid-1971. So, December 13th, 1973. Claude is out walking near Auvergne, France, inside of an active volcano called Puy de la Soros. So he's walking around, kind of minding his own business, and he meets these Earth-like figures. And they have a brief conversation um, uh, in front of like a, a, a saucer race. So they invite, him into his, like, uh, they invite them into their saucer, and he sits down with them, and they have this conversation. And at the end, Claude is instructed to come back with a pencil and paper to begin writing down what they have to teach him about the world in a couple of days. So one of these figures, Yahweh Elohim, appears to be the being in charge. So the dudes that walking meets these alien figures who invite him onto the craft and the gab. And, uh, Vaurillon also claims that prior to his first encounter, he was moved to purchase a uh, Bible sometime in late November or early December, 1973. So a couple of days or like a week and a half before this encounter, he gets this weird compulsion that he wants to go, uh, buy a Bible. Angela, has that ever happened to you? No, that hasn't Brian. But, uh, the thing that kind of struck me is they asked him to go get a pencil and paper. Yes. So. These are these are so these are aliens or I guess aliens in advanced crafts that land in a volcano and they don't have like some sort of space pen to offer him at least. Oh, none of that. No. So the idea is that he leaves and he's not to tell anyone and then he come he comes back. So he eventually comes back for six sessions um in December 1973, and he is given the name Rael by the Elohim and told to spread the story of the Elohim far and wide. And we'll get into the Raelian belief system in a bit, but the idea is that they have intervened in events described in the Bible, which is why uh, Rael was like told to go buy this Bible beforehand, because they, they, it's kind of like this ancient astronaut thing, which we'll get into in a bit. To go back to uh, 1973 and 1974, so the man now named Rael releases two tomes in quick succession. He releases the book, which tells the truth in 1974, and the... Uh, amazingly titled extraterrestrials took me to their planet in 1975 so i own a copy of extraterrestrials took me to their planet and inside of it i found an old Raelian sign-up form from probably the mid to late 80s which uh, we'll be making available as a pdf for people to check out because i thought it was too cool not to share Oh, yeah. So you'll have to scan that and uh, we'll make a copy available for anybody who wants to join the Raelians, I guess. Well, I don't even know if their fax number works anymore. Let's be honest with that. A fax. Wow. Yeah. And, or mailed in, actually. Sorry. Uh, is it good at Pueblo, Colorado? Yeah, one of the many, many Raelian centers out there. So now the book, right? Extraterrestrials took me to their home planet. The book, Angelo, is hooey. Uh, it mainly consists of Bible passages that Rael, through the Elohim, recontextualized, stating that they had a hand in the shaping of the narrative. So the the majority of the book is Bible passages and like annotations about what they kind of like changed over. Um, this, I think, is a prime example of the ancient astronaut extraterrestrial theory, right? Which was popularized in the West by Eric Von Daniken's uh, Chariot of the Gods in the late 60s. And it kind of continues this like tradition of 
aliens as like celestial beings, I guess. Yeah, they were here because we were too primitive to create all the stuff we actually did create and don't need to attribute to any aliens. Right. So in this narrative, the Earth-like Elohim, which uh, Elohim translates to those who came from the sky, created the Earth and its inhabitants over 25,000 years ago as a testing ground for biological experiments that first began on their own planet. So the idea is that the Elohim themselves had also been created by another race of aliens. So it's a theoretical succession chain that humans are now uh, part of that began in time and morning, right? So the idea that it's like it's like planet hopping, I guess, like planet A creates planet B and then planet B to C, C to D, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so then our job is to create new beings of some kind. That's right. So that's kind of like Rael, Rael, Rael's sort of like a, the ultimate game plan, I guess, is to sort of his, like... His raison d'etre. Yes, exactly. So uh, the Elohim anointed Vorilon as the new ambassador to propagate and educate the world of these facts. They also asked him to build an embassy in Israel for the Elohim to be able to then replicate their Rael encounter with the world at large. So the idea is that they create this um, home base in Israel that people could come visit and get like, sort of like indoctrinated by. At this point, were they considered a religion on their own or was it just, just one dude still? They had amassed to a couple of thousand at this point. Oh, okay. So it's not yeah. too bad. So let's skip ahead to October 7th, 1975, right? So before I forget, those books that I'd mentioned before, the two books, had sold quite well in France uh, in particular. And so he was gaining traction. So uh, October 7th, 1975. It's been 22 months since Rael last had direct contact with the Elohim when they finally visited him again. And in July of that year, he was brought outside of his home and witnessed a shape zigzagging in the sky. And that's when Vorilon knew that they were on their way back to talk to him. And uh, did they arrive? Oh, not only did they arrive, Angelo, they picked him up. So this time, the Elohim scoop him up and bring him to their planet and deposit him in a, ro- a resort-style home that he gets to stay in. So just imagine that aliens take you on vacation, dude. Okay, and then this is the premise for the second book, which you have. No, this is like the continuation of that book. And did they take him to his planet the first time, or did they make it all up? They did. They did, just very briefly, but this is, I'll kind of get into it because it's, it's, it happens during this time, too. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the book kind of covers some of this, but a lot of what happens that I describe afterwards happens both at the end of the, the, the extraterrestrials took me to their home planet as well as like afterwards, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes sense. So during this ride, he listens to a three-hour lecture by Yahweh Elohim, the guy who kind of seemed in charge the first time. And uh, Rael learns more about the tenets of Raelianism, and he's informed that he's been watched and guided since his birth in 1946, and that this encounter allows him... So so Rael goes up to this planet, right, where the Elohim hang out. He gets to meet Moses, Elijah, Buddha, and Muhammad. All right. That sounds like uh, the start of a joke, actually. What a, it's like it's like the best getaway. You get to a resort-style home, and you get to meet all of these religious figures all at once. They're all super cool. They're all super nice to you. Buddha must be pretty chill. For sure. Like They all pretty much are at this point, right? Yeah, for sure. They're all zen. So it's interesting to note, though, that the descriptions of each religious figure matches up to the popular description given to each deity during their time period. So the idea of like uh, the Buddha looking a certain way or that Mo- like Moses looked a certain way, you know, and like Muhammad looked a certain way. We're all just kind of like written in the parlance of the times, I guess. Okay. And then I'm going to quote directly from the Wikipedia article for the next part because it's a perfect distillation of what else happens to him while he's hanging out with a cavalcade of characters. Are you ready for this, Angela? I'm, I can't wait. So, quote, a guide showed him installations that house machines for creating biological robots. He gave a picture of his mother to a machine, which created similarly appearing biological robot of his mom. That night, he received an introduction to build his future home at the Planet of the Eternals and was presented young and mature female biological robots. He said that before reaching a climax, he wore a helmet which played music controlled by his thoughts, which the females danced to, and then the climax happened. End quote. So he's basically have, has his own little fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Like this, it's just, yeah. He goes to this fantastic planet. They fit him with a helmet that creates music, and he is intimate with robots, both young and old. I, I, I'm not quite sure what to say to this. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of insane. Do you remember the movie Demolition Man? I do. That was a great movie. Oh yes, now you're reminding me. The helmets in there, right? So Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock wear helmets at one point in order to become intimate. So that kind of remind me of this, and I'm not sure if they cribbed that directly from the Raelian tenants or not. Now, keep in mind that Rael Rael does not believe himself to be a deity or imbued by special powers, right? Like such as a figure of a religion naturally would, but is instead merely a conduit, an ambassador for the Elohim. Although more recently, like in the 90s, he claims that perhaps there had been artificial enhancements to himself that allowed him to live a better life. What what kind of enhancements would these be? Like better luck, I guess. Like it's it's, it's kind of what I was (laughs) saying. Dungeons and Dragons character? He has good luck and good intuition, yeah. Yeah. He's got a high charisma? 
so it's it's really talks about it's hard to talk about Rael and realism separately because the man is at the center of the movement is so intertwined that what happens to Rael also happens to the movement. So from here on out, we'll talk about both sort of interchangeably because it, they kind of happen all in tandem. Okay. All right, so let's speed things up a bit. So the late 1970s saw the movement grow to an estimated 3,000 members, because you're asking before how many. Yeah. So towards the end of the 70s, 3,000. Estimates a decade later in 1990, uh, so from 80 to 90, claim over 25,000 members around the world. According to an article in the Wichita Eagle, Rael spread his word around the world by staging different events and giving lectures. So in particular, the Japanese took to Rael's message, and his popularity in the region grew um, exponentially almost. They also tried to flex near the Vatican in the mid-1980s. Rael claimed to be the true pope to passersby while handing out Raelian literature. And Rael would return to the Vatican in 1994 as he and some of his followers uh, began performing their own baptism ceremony inside of St. Peter's Basilica before being thrown that out. can't play well over there. No. And uh, so take this with a grain of salt, but Gael himself also claims that he allegedly handed one of his novels to Pope John Paul II. I'm sure he smiled and nodded and uh, just Thanked went him. on with his day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've seen, uh, you've seen Wild Wild Country, right? I am uh, four episodes in. Okay. So you know how the Bagwan like greets everyone with the, you know, his hands claps together and sort of like a prayer motion. He just does that. That's yeah. how I feel like the, the Pope took it. He's like, thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. So Gael and his followers also tried their hand at winning over Australians in the early 1990s before selecting Quebec, wink, wink, as a base of operations, buying 115 hectares in Valcourt, Quebec, which is like an hour and a half from Montreal, you'd say, right, by car? I know. Well, I go there pretty often because my mother-in-law lives there. Oh, I was hoping to say you've, you've visited the railing grounds. No, I have not visited the railing grounds, but uh, yeah, I go to Valcourt pretty often. It's actually a really nice drive, but it is... Uh, a good hour and 15 minutes away from my house, which is in turn about 15 to 20 minutes away from Montreal. So that 90 minutes, it checks out. The Raelians build a UFO line out there in 1997. Do you remember this at all? I do not remember this at all. Um, I, I remember vague talks about who the Raelians were. We actually talked about them in class once, but really vague Really vague. 1997 was a long time ago, Brian. All right. So UFLN in Valcool, uh, it was a museum meant to educate and entice the general public into joining the Raelian movement. And the Raelians themselves also saw it as a profit-making initiative. Unfortunately, though, UFLN was shut down to the public in 2001, presumably because they realized almost no one wanted to drive 90 minutes to see the place. Uh, yeah, well, that makes sense. It is kind of not as remote out there, but it isn't super close to many populated areas. Right. So as of 2018, though, it seems as though the Raelians are selling the assets from UFO land off. I came across a Kijiji posting, which I've talked about before, about a treehouse-sized UFO, as well as some literature and pictures and frames marked as best offer accepted. So I think I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but I put down a hundred bucks. I emailed them, said, hey, take it all off your hands for a hundred bucks. Nope. Just to say that I was a contender, but uh, I have not heard back. I feel like I may have been outbid. I'm sure there are people out there that really want this stuff. So it's hard to accurately assess worldwide membership of the Raelian movement because it seems as though various offices within the movement don't communicate properly. Take, for example, membership stats for uh, 2003. So sociologist Susan J. Palmer, who actually works at Concordia University, uh, where you also work. and so has just spent- outed where I work, Brian. Well, I, I, it's, a, you, you've, it's a pretty easy find. Fine, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to see if anybody who listens to the podcast is going to just dial my number. They could and talk to you. I guess, yeah. All right. So uh, Palmer uh, in 2003, she, so she spent a lot of time studying the movement, estimated that there were about 65,000 people worldwide based on figures given to her by some members. Well, at the same time, a Japanese spokesperson for the movement claimed that there were 55,000 uh, members in 84 countries, including 6,000 in Japan alone. So remember, we were talking about Japan before being a large area um, where Raelians and Raelianism kind of like grew. Um, they make me so- laugh because isn't it always like the joke that Oh, uh, we're a rock band, but we're just big in Japan. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That that could be it. But I mean, this is kind of like a proven stat. I guess would be the best way of saying it. True. So leaked documents seem to suggest that its member base may be dwindling as it displayed uh, fourteen thousand one hundred ninety-two active, and by the active they mean like named members in two thousand and ten, and then eighteen thousand one hundred eleven active named members in two thousand seventeen. We'll link to a purported leaked report in the show notes, and we'll talk about that website in a bit uh, for funsies because there's some great stuff on there. Uh, but before that, we can't talk about aliens without talking about cloning, right, Angelo? Yeah, and this kind of links back to what he found in the spaceship that he visited and how they've been cloned from other, I guess, species? Species, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and how now he has to do the same thing. And you don't remember this, and I couldn't find the video of it online, but I remember there being a Saturday Night Live skit 
um, during the weekend update where um, Rachel Dratch played the weird baby and she had a arm growing out of her head or something. It was very odd. I don't know if anybody oh, else yes. remembers this. I've, but, yes, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Oh, I totally there we go. Remember. So I just jogged your memory. Yes, I remember that still. Yes. And it was, yeah, it was like a, a, a child's toy head glued on yes. there. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. she was drooling and spitting. And right. Yes. So right. there we go. So Clonade, founded in 1997 as a registered company in Jamaica, claimed that it would be able to clone full human beings. The company held a press conference on December 27th, 2002, to announce that it had successfully cloned their first human, a baby girl named Eve. So I assume that Rachel Dratch was playing Eve in this uh, update. Okay, exactly. So uh, during the press conference, though, there had been no proof, however, that any of these cloned human beings actually existed, right? So they talked about it, but they never presented the baby as a fait accompli. So they never had any actual proof that... This was done. It, that just, kind of reminds me of the Billy Meyer UFO um, images where like no negatives are known to exist, but don't worry, they're there. Yeah, yeah, he's totally legit. Yeah. So two years later in late 20, uh, 2004, Cloney had claimed that there were 13 clones in existence and various news outlets tried to confirm their existence. And cloning has done little to dispel these notions that they are fake. They kind of just stay silent. So people pay into the mid six figures usually for the chance to have a loved one clone, but little has come from these experiments. So sometime in mid 2003, spokesperson Brigitte Boissadier herself, a Raelian, claimed that in a strict sense, cloning was actually a product and not an actual service, adding a confusing layer to an already chaotic situation when you said herself i thought the next word was going to be clone no sadly really no um and there have been there's been like some civil litigation and like the people have done like a lot of research so i, I i'll put we'll put some stuff in the show notes but it's super fascinating but yeah the, there's like th- now like a total of like 13 i think people who claimed that are clones like as as per cloning has claimed so we won't be touching too much on the ethical and moral dilemmas surrounding cloning as we can fall down a deep rabbit hole with that so we're just gonna like leave the cloning as that is like it's something that is part of the Raelian uh set of tenants that you know we must continue to propagate the idea of a uh new society on a new planet yeah i don't really want to start touching that stuff because first of all it's totally bogus but if they did clone somebody, it would create a whole bunch of dilemmas. So we're going to move on from cloning to talking a bit about their belief system. Yeah, hit me with this belief system because I think <laughs> it's going to be a little wacky. So they do purport to believe in a form of intelligent design in that the alien species before the Elohim had created the worlds before them as a sort of like biological experiment and terraforming the earth was one such experiment. So the idea is that uh, railings are supposed to like push that forward onto a new civilization in the future. They also believe that automation of most of society's tasks will occur at a future date, leaving humans to be able to feel and create as they wish. So this kind of ties in to talking about Ray Kurzweil before with the idea of like the uh, universal basic income, which I thought sort of tied well into um, the railing belief system in general. Look at you planning this properly. I know. So they ask that any new members that join have to apostate all other religions they formerly had membership in before they can join. So the idea is that there's only one true religion for them, and that is Raelianism. Well, that's usually the case with most religions, isn't it? Yeah. So the next point, though, is kind of a surprising one, but not really. So Raelians are sex-positive feminists. Well, so see, that's, that's good. At least, at least they have one good thing. So take, for example, Operation Condom. In the early 1990s, Montreal school boards still fell within religious boundaries, and the Catholic school board in Montreal decided to exonate plans from condom dispensers from Montreal area high schools. Raylians claim that this increased the number of STDs, because we're not saying STIs yet, this is the early 90s, we're still saying STDs, and unwanted pregnancies, and begun handing out an estimated 10,000 condoms to teens right outside of school property in a cart outfitted to attract attention. They also believe in the right for women to go topless, and have uh, protested this before. But Speaking of cars, though, and this actually has little to do with their belief system, uh, but if you ask anyone who grew up in the southwest Montreal city of Verdun about the Raelians, uh, chances are they would mention seeing the Raelimobile, which was a car with a gigantic UFO on its head. So basically, it was a raised UFO, so you still could see through the windshield. It was just above you, and it was propped up high enough so the driver could see without issue. I myself saw it for many years, parked next to a nondescript duplex uh, while I went to Sejap, which is junior college, and then university. So I'd take the bus into a metro station, and on the way there, I'd see the railing car park there for years and years. And did you take a picture of this said UFO? No, but if you Google around, you can find one very easily. And I guess what we'll do is we'll put one in the show notes if that works for you. I guess. <laughs> Getting back to the matter at hand, though, Angelo, Aurelians uh, are big believers in a geneocracy, a political theory that suggests that those who hold elective, elected office must first demonstrate a certain level of verifiable intelligence, as well as demonstrate a certain level of compassion for their fellow man. So voters should also be able to demonstrate a level of intelligence lower than that of an elected official, but still meet a certain baseline threshold. The, the threshold's 
uh, proposed by the Raelians are 50% above the mean for an electoral candidate and 10% above the mean for someone who's allowed to vote. That sort of gets complicated at a certain point uh, to try and verify these things. I guess in theory, it seems like a sort of interesting idea. Usually those that rise to the ranks of leaders of countries do show some sort of intelligence, but I'm not going to start talking and going into depth with that. (laughs) That's too bad, though. (laughs) <laughs> so Raelians also believe in economic humanitarianism, which is the idea that there is no such thing as any sort of permanent ownership. Instead, people are renting from each other for 49-year period. So Rael well, has wait, stated— Wait, wait. How did yeah. they get to that 49-year number? I wasn't able to find that in the research, and I was very interested. So if anyone has any idea why it's 49 years, please let me know, because I'm also like fascinated by this. So Rael has stated that the road to a world without money is through capitalism and globalization. He also believes in a global government, which— is not a huge surprise and uh, not through communism. So Rael is anti-communist, pro-capitalist with a smudge of socialism in there. It's like a weird mishmash. He's sort of like, well, you know what? He's perfect for Quebec. Yeah, and that's the thing. He's a man of his time and his place, right? So the last thing to note is that Raelians are big-time sensualists and believe that each should break free from society's routine and habits, exploring love in a myriad number of ways, including through sex acts, both by oneself and with partners, and that all forms of sexual relationships should be recognized legally. Sometimes it sounds like he just decided to form a sex cult. There is a tinge of that, especially when you start reading through the literature. And um, so there's a website called RaelianLeaks.org, which we would highly suggest going and check out. So I started looking at that due to the fact that I was trying to figure out uh, membership numbers and a Google search led me to that. But then it also led to a couple of interesting things, which I was sharing with you, such as uh, documents for something called Eros world, which was their idea of an adult Disney world and would have all kinds of main attractions. Uh, so the main attraction, so I'm reading from one of the leaked documents here. The main attraction is a sexy show with new dancers and review French can-can style girls. Uh, so like there's a transvestite and drag queen show club and SM club and erotic massage salon. My favorite though is a movie theater with 3d IMAX erotic movie. Who's shooting erotic movies in IMAX in 75 mil. Well, that's pretty amazing. Actually, a lot of this stuff is pretty readily available in downtown Montreal. I like how they have a sex shop, a bookstore, and a video shop listed too. Yeah, also available in downtown Montreal. (laughs) Though one of my favorite (laughs) things before I forget, are you ready for this? The penis tower, the tallest penis-shaped tower in the world is something that they want to have at Eros World. So, um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, So uh, That is not available in downtown Montreal. It is as of yet. No. So they were doing some quick math in the financial section. So I'm going to read directly from the document. At least 10,000 visitors per day are expected at $50 per person that can make an income of half a million dollars a day. That makes $50 million per month or $180 million per year only for the park, right? And so the ad revenue from all of these side things would also increase uh, revenue to grossing about $270 million per year. And uh, how far did these plans get They're just into the Not planning very. phase? And- yeah, they were they just thrown out into the world and like that just kind of lived there. Yeah, I don't think that ever would have worked in any way. No, no, not at all. So one of the more interesting things, too, is uh, there's like a bunch of Raelian uh, leaked emails here, including one of my favorite ones, which is a letter from Rael to Steven Spielberg. Well, that, yeah, if you're going to write to any director... Make it the one who's done movies about aliens. My other favorite thing is that there's a letter that's like a little bit more boring to George Soros, which is uh, one of Alex Jones's favorite targets in terms of the money men in the world, right? The idea that he's funding all of you know the Clinton stuff, et cetera, et cetera. I'd be curious to know what Alex Jones thinks about the Raelians. They do kind oh, of man. call for a one world government. I don't know if you'd be up for that. That's true. So uh, the letter to Steven Spielberg is from 1996 and Rael had just seen Schindler's List. And so he compliments Spielberg uh, about the movie and about various aspects. But the letter slowly morphs into something else, which is Rael draws a line or uh, not necessarily a distinction, but a similarity in between uh, the Jewish people in Schindler's List and Raelians and persecution. So he's very misguided at this point. Yeah, yeah. What, does he think Raelians are persecuted in some way or another? Yeah, he does. He he believes that they're attacked in the media and that, you know, there's all this like disinformation going on and that he's just a target for all of this. Well, he kind of brings the target upon himself with the stuff he does, but 
Yeah, he really should not be comparing himself like that, especially to somebody like Steven Spielberg. Right. So he writes this whole letter, and so I'm going to quote from it because you have to remember that Réal is uh, uh, French by origin, so his English is a little bit bad. And you know, keep in mind this hasn't been polished. Also, uh, quote: Some of our members started to be physically attacked in the streets, and the street policemen start to support the public in that. The rumor pressure is so strong. Only a film describing the process can help our French members to regain their dignity. And there's no one French director enough courageous to produce it. So he's kind of asking Steven Spielberg to produce the railing film. Yeah. It sounds like a plan. I'm sure uh, Spielberg has been mulling that over for the last 20 years and any day now that movie will come out. And uh, unsurprisingly, I don't think there was ever a response to this. I'm shocked. It really just baffling stuff. Do they have a podcast? I, he, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, he didn't want to, Look that up. Yeah, we should. Uh, I, I think I'll look that up. Maybe we should look that up. You can go ahead and find out if there is a brilliant podcast that you can go ahead and listen to. And maybe we'll have them as guests, do a crossover with them. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be definitely outside of the realm of normalcy. But yeah, let's let's aim for, you know, a Raelian double density crossover. Well, look, there's definitely Raelians uh, in Verdun, which isn't too far from you. So maybe... You can have right. some come over to your place. I'll shoot up. I'll fire off the railing like flare gun and see where this goes. Yeah. Say, Hey, you know, I was the guy who wrote to you guys on Kijiji. And a lot of their imagery is very falcon nature, right? Cause they're very sex positive. So it's both like, um, uh, you know, feminine as well as positive. So it's like a lot of like, you know, dongs and a lot of, of female genitalia discussed, uh, which is kind of super interesting when you consider the idea of, of being a big time sensualist. Yeah, it's it's. I think they're a little uh, too much over the edge at this point, and uh, they're sort of a parody of themselves. Yeah, almost. I feel like in some of the stuff I was reading, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. And then other stuff, like you know, like going to a resort and hanging out with all of the deities of Earth and finding out that you have to like sort of like terraform a new Earth eventually with your you know movement is a little out there. And I'm using a little, little yeah. <laughs> kind of uh, underwhelmingly. Yeah. Would you join this cult slash movement? No, thank you. I don't think it's for me, especially at this point in my life. Maybe when I was in like my 20s uh, with no attachments to anything. Uh, even then, probably not. UFOs are cool, though. <laughs> a resounding no from Angelo and a uh, 3% yes from me, if I did say 3%. it on 100%. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, like I was saying, like some of the stuff is kind of interesting, and I do agree with it. But the majority of the stuff, especially the cloning stuff, is uh, unfortunate out there and just unverifiable, and sort of tarnishes any of the good uh, work that they've put forward. I feel. Yeah, the cloning, the whole sex cult thing, they all kind of mash together the feeling of persecution, even though you shouldn't be feeling persecuted. Uh, yeah, it's a bit strange. Do we want to start a, a double density scale of? Uh, am I going to join this cult? <laughs> like a one like it's got to be a weird number like one to seven one to 49 <laughs> let's do one to seven i'm a two yeah i know i'm a one perfect uh not a huge surprise there so you have family vacation coming up you're going uh to florida right you're going to disney world yeah we're going to boston first and then flying out of boston to florida to disney world uh we're not really visiting florida though we're just going right. to disney world but so you're not going to Eros world um, I think that's one of the new uh, kingdoms at Disney World this year, right? Well, you'd have to look at the map and decide how on brand that is uh, for Disney. So, Angela, do you feel like you've learned something about the railings today? I must say the research you did was really impressive. Uh, just to, to peek behind the curtain, I kind of stayed away from this part because I really wanted Brian to uh, kind of go in and talk about this. Uh, Brian is quickly becoming an expert on alien cults. Yes, and we'll be uh, sort of uh, continuing this series over the next uh, weeks, if not months, I think would be like a better timeline for this. So yeah, let us know what you think about Raelianism, Raelians, Rael. You know, uh, did you listen to Claude's Teen Heartthrob 1960s songs? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You can go ahead and tweet at us at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. You can head over to double density.net. Go ahead and see all of our new content. So if this is the first time that you're listening to the show, great. Thanks. We hope you stick around. If not, you know, you can always just click on our blogs and also click on the contact page in order to let us know how you feel, what you're thinking. Do you think cults are a good idea do you think they're a bad idea do you think they're just an idea that exists outside of reason we'd love to hear your thoughts 
Don't forget, they can also review us in the iTunes store or even just give us a star in Overcast if that's the way you do it. But we'd love to know what you think through that as well. That uh, apparently might even help us uh, get more ears on this podcast. I'm not sure if that actually works. We're still in the midst of that social experiment. And that is it for episode 54 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we dissect the Infinity War movie frame by painstaking frame all two hours and 40 minutes of it. It's going to be an extravaganza. We might have to split this up into six or seven parts, but we're going to do it. Yeah, that sounds like a plan, Brian. All right, Angela, I will see you on the Elohim planet with all of our favorite deities and we'll come back next week and I guess record, right? Does that sound good to you? Sounds good. Hopefully I don't get caught up too much in the cool stuff that's on that resort. Perfect. See you around. Bye. It forces you to separate the uh, 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. Um, my cat just distracted me. I, was that a door? Okay, that was the cat. That was the cat. Hey, hey, hippie, it's not 420 anymore.